You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast. Let's talk about. Yeah, welcome. So, here we are. Hi, Chris. How are you? Yeah, I'm well, thanks. <laughs> thanks for coming along. Um, I'm not sure if we're going to be live on YouTube tonight, but we are definitely in Facebook because... Um, I can see we're being joined by the gang now. Timothy's yeah. here, Mark's here, Catherine's here. You can see the names on the right, Chris. Yeah. Sure. Um, as I was saying, they're a very friendly bunch. And a lot of them, of course, have heard of you already. We're going to talk tonight on the subject of posture, which I'm very excited about. We're just going to let the room fill up a bit. If you're new to this, if you're listening to the podcast, well, um, it is actually recorded live. Um, and we go out on the Facebook page on Sports Therapy Association. And also, normally, we go out on YouTube. I'm not sure if we are tonight. And you're joining us at episode 40, which we're very excited about. It's come out of COVID. I was talking to our guest earlier on. One of the good things to come out of COVID is we're all just getting together a little bit more and not being seen as the competition. We're talking a bit more, not just among sports therapists and massage therapists, but also physios and osteos, and podiatrists and chiropractors. We're all kind of going, right, we're in this game together now. And we've had a kind of a big and we still do have a rather large enemy, um, which is making things difficult for us. But we're going to get through it together. So. It's great to see you all joining us live and we encourage you to do so if you can. Um, I just want to say thank you last night, uh, last week to Mike Stewart, who joined us for a very inspirational uh, episode on pain. And just um, I'm sure something we'll touch on tonight where we need to look back and think, oh, have we got the best teaching skills as therapists? It's all very well just kind of learning new tricks and with our hands. But when it comes to helping people in pain, then sometimes we got to think about how we talk to that person and hear what they're saying and. And, um, and that's basically teaching, it's education. And a lot of us don't have that. We're not just born with it a lot of the time. So thanks Mike um, uh, for that. And it's available on YouTube and on the podcast um, for download on all popular apps. Right, enough of that. Let's not waste this gentleman's time anymore. Thanks for joining us. What would you normally be doing tonight, uh, Chris? Normally I would uh, probably be eating, yes. <laughs> or probably washing up having eaten, yes. It's in, it's, um, it's, I've actually had, I've never had this before, I've had about six people kind of suggesting that that um, tonight by Matt Scar's book said this might be a bit of a fruity conversation. I think maybe because I put that posture in a bomb and an explosive thing, because it is a kind of a, a much debated, it was a bit of clickbait there, it is a debated topic. Yeah. Um, um, and things have obviously changed a bit. So I'm, I'm hoping that people have fallen for that clickbait and thought, oh, great, this is going to be really interesting. Um, but that's the topic we're going to talk about tonight. And you're running courses at the moment, aren't you? Specifically called posture courses, aren't they? Well, I, I run courses all the time, but uh, one of them has aspects of posture in, in, in the sort of back rehab side of things. Yeah. Um, posture assessment and where it is now, really. Um, you know, where, where it was years ago and where it is now. This is the because I think that's quite a bold move. And I think it's good because. What we try and do here, why I try and guide things is not let the swing, the pendulum swing too far either way. And I did like seeing on your website, let's just bring it up here at the moment. If you listen to podcasts, obviously you can't see what's going to come up on the screen now. Um, but let's bring this up here now. I'll put it onto big screen so everyone can see it. Um, so, yeah, we're talking about um, the website norrishealth.co.uk. Let's Again, plenty of information on there. It's a great use for website, plenty of free CPD and just having a look through the blogs, blogs. But the the courses as well, the posture course um, is definitely an eye opener. As soon as I saw some of the myths and misconceptions, I thought, oh, this guy is going to be interesting. We like that. Because as we were saying before, 
evolving with your thoughts on posture is a great is a great way of evolving as a therapist, isn't it? Would you say that's fair yeah, to say? Yeah. I mean, I think we've we've got to step back a little bit and 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 say, well, you know, what what why is posture such a topic? In I mean, it's one of these things which is a bit like annual therapy, I suppose. It's gone through, you know, trial by social media, as it were, and. Um, I think posture, in a way, represents the changing nature of of therapies. And, uh, you know, many years ago, if you look at where where posture came from, it was you know, military background, stand up straight and all this type of thing. And then it became sort of medicalized and, and sort of became owned by the therapy world, if you like. And, and, and it was something, I suppose that we could we could manage we could we could do something with rather than you know the surgeons or, or or the medics and so if we could say well pain was the result of something that we could change that would empower us and and and, and i think you know historically that that was the case um and certainly when i first trained which was some time ago i have to say i trained qualified in 1981 oh, before many people who were born who are watching this podcast but it, it was the, it was the case that we had the book the florence kendall book and you would go through that book on posture and muscle imbalance and you would assess things and you would and you would claim to be doing all sorts of things and and at, and at that time, you know, there was very little research in the therapy world. And, and that that um, sort of side of things became researched by the likes of, you know, Vladimir Yanda, Carl Levitt. These people were the gurus at the time teaching and their work was taken up by some of the physios, Gwen Jull and Carolyn Richardson in, in University of Queensland. And the, they would do more and more research. And gradually as we looked at the things we were doing and used some sort of critical appraisal skills we learned that yeah there was some research which supported things and there was some research which actually threw things out um and that is the nature of therapy in general isn't it you know as we go through you know what what we know about covid now we didn't know a year ago two years ago and what we know about posture now and the way it interacts with therapies and the way it interacts with pain we perhaps didn't know some time ago and certainly you know when i was when i was writing when i i, I some years ago I've written a, a variety of books, but I wrote a textbook based around sort of posture and muscle imbalance. And the things that I was writing about then, 20 years ago, were based on the science of that time. And now we've, we've moved forwards and you've got to be big enough to say, well, some of that was great and some of that was not. So we move on. And, and you know, progress is made by criticism as they say you know we stand on the shoulders of giants don't we and and and, and those giants were the Kendalls and the Richardsons and the gels of the time um and and you know we are very grateful to for what they did but we we move on so you mentioned one of the favorite topics in posture and which is still his name is still um kind of raised in most kind of polar debates on uh 
on Twitter in particular. But yeah, Yanda, so the famous Vladimir Yanda. Let's bring up a little picture so people who are not familiar on what we're talking about. If you're not familiar with the name, I'm sure you're familiar with pictures kind of like this. Let's just bring this up for a sec. If you're listening on the podcast, then we have on our screen nearly then, nearly put it on there. We have in our screen um, the typical picture which you'll see on someone's website. I got this one. I did a search straight away and it came up where you've got somebody who's standing with their head thrusted forward and kind of kyphotic back, their stomach kind of sticking out. I don't think anyone, well, I'll tell a lie. Some people are like that, but it's a very kind of forced posture, which is suggesting that we've got uh, weak neck flexor muscles, we've got tight upper back muscles, tight chest, weak back. And when you draw a line to join these things together, it forms a cross. Um, and as um, Chris has mentioned already, this was at the time something pretty impressive um, from Vladimir Janda or Yanda, it's the correct pronunciation, as Chris has reminded me. Um, but it's still, well, first of all, that that picture that's up there, Chris, how much, I mean, has that had to change over the years? Okay. What, what? Let's, let's, again, we need to look at this historically and say, well, mm -hmm. this, this comes from a profession where initially we were using machines and it was all to do with reducing pain. And then it became very joint centric and we were mobilizing and manipulating. And what Yander did and together for, for a start, he was a physician who then became a physiotherapist, which is unusual. And he was best buddies with Carl Levitt, who had a similar sort of training. And basically what they did is they started beating the drum saying, look, not everything is to do with joints. We've got muscles in the body. And, you know, muscles can can be sources of pain. Muscles can be used and, and rehabilitation can be used to target pain. We don't just need surgery. We don't need drugs. We don't need, you know, magic. We can train these people to become pain free by rehabilitation, which they're doing themselves. And so he, through research in inverted commas in that it was his own observations rather than clinic it was you know clinical investigation rather than laboratory based research initially he looked at people and he said well do you know when i look at people i find that you know they've they're in pain they haven't been moving around and so you would think well if they've been in pain for all that time and they've rested all their muscles are going to be completely lax and, and deconditioned and no use to anyone. That's not what he found. He said, well, you know, I, what I find is that some muscles are weak, but actually some muscles are tight. And when you press those muscles, they really hurt and they seem to be a generator of pain. And so he went through the body and he said, well, which, you know, let's categorize these muscles, find which ones are tight, find which ones don't appear to be tight. And remember, he was doing this with his hands. He wasn't at that stage doing it with EMG and thing. And he came up with these patterns. And the one that you've got on, on, on the diagram there is called the upper cross syndrome. And there was an equivalent one called the lower cross syndrome. So the upper cross syndrome was to do with the scapulae and, and the, the shoulders. Lower cross syndrome was to do with the pelvis and, and the low back. And then he had the layer syndrome, which was to do with going through the body and saying, well, certain parts of the body demonstrate weakness, certain parts demonstrate extra strength. Now, when we when we look at this, we do find this clinically. There's no doubt that we find this clinically. But if you take a group of individuals and you say, well, OK, does everybody who's got a shoulder pain 
do they all have a procrastinant? The answer is no, they don't. So we can't say that this is necessarily a cause of a particular condition, but you might, as a soft tissue therapist, come across somebody who has muscle tightness at the same time as muscle laxity in different areas of the body. Therefore, what we have to do is to focus our treatment accordingly, rather than doing a blanket approach, rather than saying, well, okay, this person is weak, let's go get them doing deadlifts and squats. This person is tight, let's go give them some relaxation, some massage and whatever. Um, so it, 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 it is patient-centric, but it's 20, 30 years ago. So, you know, quite revolutionary at the time, quite revolutionary at the time. Interesting guy, Vladimir Yander, because he, he had had polio. And so um, whenever you saw him lecture halfway through the day, he would lie down on the couch for half an hour, get get himself sorted and, and then he'd go again. We would call that pacing now. At the time, he just sort of said, well, I'm having a bit of a, lap, bit of a rest and I, I'm, I'm resting my hip. So the answer is it is relevant, but it's more likely to be relevant to individual patients to rather than populations. So in other words, it's not going to be every person who comes in with shoulder pain will demonstrate an upper cross syndrome. It's not a cause, it's a symptom. Not a cause, but a symptom, very nice. Yeah, it's sometimes his name is drag, dragged through the mud by the very kind of like vocally skeptical, but a massive pioneer, like you say at the time, like so many who were nothing else to work with, and they came up with these revolutionary ideas, which are normally, uh, you know, a, much better in terms of thinking about it than what was before yeah. them. You know, um, Yanda, Shirley Sharman, and and Carl Levitt, these people treated thousands upon thousands of patients. So Yanda was involved, and Carl Levitt was involved in the Czech coal industry, and 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 he, you know, he he was sort of uh, massive in in that area. Um, and, you know, you talk about people and you sort of say, well, I've seen five or six patients with this. These guys had seen thousands upon thousands of patients. And, and yeah, they had huge amounts of experience. So, so something. I'm going to have to put on my sceptical hat a little bit okay. um, because you're being far too kind of <laughs> with everything you're saying at the moment. <laughs> but OK, so they saw thousands of patients, but. Why do you think that the idea, why are these posters kind of used so much now? And why is it kind of a, a standard part of level three, level four, do a postural assessment? Um, people still believe that they're making people better by trying to stretch these muscles that are too tight, trying to strengthen these muscles which they think are too weak. They're not doing tests to actually see whether they are tight or weak. They probably wouldn't know how to do to do so if they wanted to. And often you can't. You say like he was using his hands to tell whether muscles. And how is it we all forget about the people who walk in who are like, we've got the posture of that person, for example, in the photo, but they've got no aches and pains at all. They're just coming in because they yeah. want to, you know. Because what we, we all want a quick fix. And modern society is very much about that. And, and these, you know, that diagram is one aspect of one approach that these people came up with. They wouldn't take it in isolation. They would go through various different tests. They would go through an assessment. They would develop outcome measures. They would test and retest. So when you look at something like that, it would be a, the equivalent of saying, what does an osteopath do? Oh, he manipulates the neck. That's all he does. Well, or she does. Not the case. What, what, what does 
what does posture represent? Oh, it, it's just that that one diagram. And it is not the case that uh, that that is going to give you all the all the information that you require. So if you looked at that diagram and you said, well, OK, um, what we're going to do is we're going to correct your posture in inverted commas. We're going to stretch those muscles and we're going to strengthen those muscles and you know, we, we're going to change you. So firstly, the implication being that you're broken. That is incorrect. Secondly, that there is something wrong with you and therefore there's an element of guilt that you should be you should have. That is incorrect. And then that we can we can change your posture. And that is not the case. Now, Vlander, Yander famously said, if you can affect somebody's posture by just five percent, you will be clinically relevant. So he, he was sort of saying, well, you can just just reduce the tone a little bit, increase the strength a little bit, and that will probably be enough to target the patient's symptoms. And, and frequently those symptoms were, were pain. So he was under no illusion that you could take that person and correct their posture, because to correct implies that there's something wrong and we know that there isn't that, that that mammals are adaptable and you can adapt to so many things you know you can look at an olympic athlete who has exactly that posture and there'll be a fantastic shot putter or discus thrower so that only becomes relevant it is a, if it's a driver to a person's symptoms so if you look at that and you say to somebody, well, you know, the person comes in and they say, well, I've got horrendous headaches. And you, you look at that posture and you say, clinically, I, I need to make a decision. Is that relevant to their symptoms? So, you know, can I can I change something and reduce their symptoms? Can I reproduce their symptoms by altering um, certain, you know, certain alignments, for example? And if you can, that's relevant. And if you can't, throw it out. It's a bit like saying, well, you know, I've got a sore foot. Well, perhaps it's the it's the stone in your shoe, but equally it's not likely to be the stone under the collar of your shirt. It has to be relevant to the patient. That's good. That's very nice. I'm turning that into a soundbite. That's lovely. OK, so I'm still going to try and push you into a corner, but I know it's not going to work because you're a black belt jiu-jitsu, so you're used to getting <laughs> out from that sort of time. <laughs> a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. But, um, OK, so... Are you prepared to say that we shouldn't be talking about bad posture? Yeah, I don't Across think we should board. be talking about bad anything. You know, uh, words have power and, 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 you know, I can come up with infinite numbers of examples of where patients have been disempowered and where patients' conditions have been made worse by what they have been told or what how they've been misled and it's not so much what you do it's how you do it you know if you want to assess somebody's posture go ahead but the way that you're doing it if you are in and this is not just therapy this is in the exercise world as well so for exercise professionals if you're implying that somebody is at fault if you're implying that it's somebody's fault that they've made themselves they they've made this condition themselves because of their error of their posture you you're, you're going to make them worse but equally you could say well look you know you've come to me and you've said 
you've had a, a, a scan and the scan was completely clear, but it showed a little bit of wear and tear in your neck. You've got these headaches. But I think that if we if we can strengthen these muscles, you may improve because your body is able to heal itself. And once you start to do that, and once you start to see those symptoms improving, the patient is then empowered. They think, okay, it's something I can do for myself. Whereas the, the, the contra to that would be to say, well, I can't do anything because I have upper cross syndrome, because I have a flat back, because I'm unstable, because I have poor a poor transversus abdominis woe is me there's no point in me trying because i have that fault so it's the way that it is done and i come across this every single day i come across it today every single day with a patient who has been disempowered by the way the treatment has been given to them it's gonna be tricky isn't it i'm just i'm just i'm just basically falling in love with you a little bit with this conversation <laughs> I'm going to try and trap you. I, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to make you admit now on, on record all the kind of things where we shouldn't be doing this about posture. And then eventually in about 30 minutes time, I'm going to say, so when does posture matter? But I'm not going to do it yet. Yeah. Not do it yet. No, this is great stuff. I hope people are listening to attention. And don't forget, if you've got any questions, people, then obviously, I mean, if I was in there, I'd be asking a load of bunch of questions at the moment. But reach out because um, this gentleman knows his stuff. and He's been around a long time and he's evolved a lot. So do ask questions. Um, so what about da -da 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 -da, words like kyphosis and lordosis and scoliosis and all these kind of like abnormalities? You're saying we should note an assessment, but we got to approach it in a different way. The way we, one, as therapists, link that to the cause of the pain, and two, mentioning them to the patient, I suppose, or the client, and and kind of yeah. So so those those are you know a, a medical diagnosis. So scoliosis is a medical diagnosis. However, what we can say is that could be structural or it could be functional. If it's structural, well, orthopedic surgeon's gonna gonna deal with that. But if it's functional, if somebody is simply pulled out of alignment by the way their muscles are working, you need to refer them to somebody who knows something about muscles. Now, there's an interesting case that uh, many years ago, I, 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 you know, my courses are have evolved. Many years ago, I used to run a course called Back Stability and Muscle Imbalance. And a part of that course was to do with postural assessment and posture changes. And I had a, a young physiotherapist on who said, well, I have had just let you know at the beginning of the course that I've had a scoliosis. And that's what made me go to physiotherapy because I had a Harrington rod or they considered putting a Harrington rod in my spine, which is a particular way of treating the spine or was more of a popular way of treating the spine. So, and this was a three day course. And we went through and we assessed various different postures and she did several of these different exercises. And she came back to it was a two part course. So she came back after the, the first weekend, the second weekend. She said, this is the first time ever in my living memory that I can remember that my spine has been straight. And she said, well, I think, you know, nobody has nobody has said to me that it could be structure or it could be function. Nobody's ever, ever taken me through that. And yet I feel that I am improving and that I have changed the, the alignment of my spine. And, 
you know, that is something which I think is important, that it's easy to play these things down. And it's easy to say, no, the research shows that posture is not relevant to blah, blah, blah. And that's absolutely the case. And I can I can rattle off things that it's not relevant to headaches. It's not relevant to shoulder impingement, et cetera, et cetera. But within each of those groups, there will be individuals where it is important to them at that moment of their clinical condition. So you'd say, well, OK, we can say that low back pain is not correlated to posture. We know that. But for one individual in front of you at that moment, their low back pain will respond to a postural intervention, whatever that may be. Now, that postural intervention may be you just go out for a walk. You've been sitting down, bent like a banana throughout lockdown. Just go out for a 10 minute walk every day. That's a postural intervention. You have you have you have changed the the sensory input so that they can alter their alignment, if you like. And I, you know, I've done this all the time. I, I, I treated the guy today, discharged him, never seen him, never met him. It was all online. It was all virtual stuff. And he couldn't work because of essentially because of postural pain as a result of doing his job. He was a, a, a computer programmer and obviously he was working predominantly on computers. And when it went down into lockdown, that's all he did. But we took him through a series of programs. Now, I never I never said to him, look, back pain is not related to posture. I didn't quote the research. That would, wouldn't have been a human thing to do. But I gradually took him through a process where he could come up with that 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 realization rather than simply violating somebody's beliefs you know i accepted it and you know he sort of said oh well you know i've i've had back pain and i've been told that i've got a poor core now i could have said to him well actually that's not related to your back pain at all but what there's no point it's a bit like saying to a child who falls down and bruises his knee oh well you'll be fine it's not broken well yeah but it still hurts i've still got a great big bruise on my leg um, so I, I, I think I think it's important that we that we consider we consider the way that the body moves. And as part of that, that will be the orientation of one body segment compared to another. And that is what posture is all about. Now, unfortunately, posture has become a plumb line. And as soon as you mention posture, that's what people think about. And really, that isn't what it's all about. You know, it, 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 it's it's all about how the body works in a particular time through through a particular series. And, and posture may not be relevant to back pain to some individuals, but it may be relevant to somebody who's doing heavy lifting, for example. You might sort of say, well, you know, if, if you change the way that you are lifting, your lift may be more effective, more efficient. I'm going to I want to step back a sec because I saw something which I think I'm going to take issue with. Um, so postural intervention for me is like where you have blamed a particular static posture on something or, or you've blamed you're saying this pain you're experiencing is because of this particular state of your posture when I've lied you down or stood you up and now I'm going to do something to change that posture and and now the pain's gone. But you kind of use the example of taking someone for a walk. Now, obviously, by 
walking you've changed their dynamic posture and the way they're holding themselves but i don't know i don't know whether that's stretching a bit saying that's a postural intervention oh i think it is i think it is it is it is you're not it's not permanent we're not changing anything permanently but what we're doing is we're saying you have overloaded your system by spending too much time in a flexed posture so we are going to spend some of that time in an extended posture so all we are doing is changing things and it may be the opposite so you might sort of say well look you've spent so much time walking that you're in pain just sit down and we're doing the opposite now in terms of you know, the way that things were once um, uh, sold, if you like, that would be a mirror image approach, a mirror image exercise. But we know that tissue responds to overload, but it can also respond to both underload and excessive overload. So, you know, if you go and do a bench press and then you rest and you do it again and you rest, eventually you get stronger. But if you don't lift heavy enough, you're not going to get stronger but equally if you don't rest long enough you're not going to you're, you're not going to respond so you know the the intervention is important but the recovery is important as well and, and what we're what we're doing there is allowing the 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 system to recover to you know to do to to, to sort itself out and one of the things i put i put up in my uh, in one of my lectures is a little comparison of a, a car with three wheels and a dog with three legs that you know when the car loses a wheel well it's not going anywhere but when the dog loses a leg initially it can't do anything but eventually it can adapt and it can and it can thrive now we're not machines so we can adapt and we can thrive the question is have is it the adaptation which is incorrect and, and is that what we're managing um to try to target that person's pain so you were suggesting this person's case the fact they were sitting down for too long they were in a flex position for too long and the act of walking was introducing them to a more of an extended position but that how how are you how are you so sure that their pain was due to being sitting down for too long being flexed when you've got other people coming in who are sitting down for ages and not in pain because for it to be an intervention, you've got to first say that it's the causation. So that's the problem. Well, not necessarily the causation uh, at that moment. Yes, but it, it may not. It may not be um, long term. Um, but but what we're looking at is it's symptom modification. So if a person's in pain, I need to be able to do something to reduce their their pain or reduce their symptoms. It may not be pain. And once you've found that, you're going to lock into that in terms of your symptom modification. Now, that's not to say that that's the only thing you would do and the most important thing, but it's to say that that is important at that moment. So if they're in a reactive phase of an injury and you say, well, if I can modify something, you're in, you're in pain, so stand up. Does that reduce the pain? Yes, it does. Okay, let's keep doing that. And once that's happened, it's a sales pitch. So you say, well, OK, that's reducing the pain. I could give you a bottle of paracetamol that would reduce the pain. I could hit you around the head with a wet kipper that would distract you and that, that would reduce the pain. So all we're doing is we're using your body's own pharmacy to reduce its own pain. How clever is that? What we're then going to do is once that has gone, we're going to do something else. So I'm not saying to you. Uh, you know, to the, to the patient, you need to do this movement over and over again 
all the time and that's it. What I'm saying is at this stage, you do this. And the analogy I give to patients is, look, when you cut your finger, it's bleeding. Let it form a scab and then move it. Now, if you move it while it's bleeding and it doesn't form a scab, it's not going to get anywhere. Equally, if you don't move it, once the scab has fallen off, you're going to end up with a stiff finger. So we have to parallel the stage of healing. And this is this is the approach that I use in my three R's approach to back rehab, where I say, you know, it's a reactive phase. You've got a recovery phase and then you've got a resilience phase and you're trying to target your treatment to that particular phase. And it is targeting the treatment to the person, not to the tissue. So, you know, we might be saying we're, we're working on muscle. No, you're not. You're working on somebody's skin and there's muscle underneath. But that whole thing, the skin and the muscle, is inside a shoulder. And that whole shoulder is inside a person. So whatever we're doing is biopsychosocial, whether we like it or not. Um, it's just that sometimes we don't admit it. I like it. Okay. So, so the act of getting to stand up and walk, yeah. I can see you are not necessarily just associating it as a lengthening of the hip flex or something. It's the whole thing of, of, of yeah. the brain receiving different sensory stimulation and the biopsychosocial side of things. And yeah. then, yeah, that's cool. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. You've, and, you've... And depending on who you were, you could argue, couldn't you? You could, you could have some person there and saying, right, well, I'm into muscle. This is what I think walking's doing. You could have a psychologist and saying, this is what I think walking's doing. A sociologist, this is what I think walking is doing. Um, and, and they would all be right because they're all dealing with the person, but from, from a, a different lens. I can't believe I've met someone else in 10 years who's also using the wet uh, kipper. Uh, um, I've, I thought I was alone in that, but I often use that. Well, I, I could go in the garden and slap my bare buttocks with a wet kipper and it might start raining. But I mean, I didn't actually cause it to rain. It's nice. Nice to meet you, fellow kipper enthusiast. <laughs> and you've definitely tickled a few people in the uh, in the listens as well. Um, so. Is this a million of miles away from the therapist who therefore starts trying to stretch the hell out of the hip flexors because they say that's the source of your issue because you've been sitting down too, too long, which happens a lot. And we've got loads. Of how to stretch a hip flexor, and it's the first thing they're like. It runs down to clinical reasoning, doesn't it? Are you, you know, what, what is it you're trying to achieve? I, I, I'm so the therapist says, I think I'm stretching the hip flexors in order to correct the alignment of the pelvis. So, what has the patient that's that's fine, you, you've you've intended to say that because you think well that's a good thing you know I, I i think it's something i can modify that's not what the patient has heard the patient has heard there's something wrong with my hip flexors they are tight that's something i can't do anything about now in order to do something about it i've got to go to this therapist because he or she is the only person who can fix me now so what you've intended with your treatment has not been what is received. So you've intended something positive and actually they've achieved something negative. And so you've got to be, you, you know, we've got to be very careful with this. You could equally argue, well, we know for, for a fact that if you're stretching somebody's hip flexors, the chances are you're going to achieve nothing in terms of the, the physiology. Now, you might change the tone of the muscle or you might be instrumental in the patient changing the tone of the muscle. You know, as a therapist, you're not going to do it unless you inject something into them. 
But um, what you what you can do is encourage them to, you know, hold their hand, as it were, to encourage them to go through that process. And I, and I think it's again, it's a sales pitch of, of what you do. We could have three therapists all targeting that pain in different ways. And there are many ways to skin a cat, as they say. Providing the outcome is one of improvement, we could turn around and say whether well, the treatment was correct. The danger, of course, comes when you lock somebody into a treatment thinking you're doing some good, but in actual fact, you're not. And I've come across this and other sort of therapists who've been in the game for a long time will be able to tell you hundreds of times where people have been inadvertently misled to not, not just some therapists, you know, people have had scans, x-rays, you know, different things where they, you know, for years they thought, well, OK, that I, I can't do anything about this because that scan shows I've got an osteophyte which is pushing into this or because that scan shows that I've got something which is not in the right place. And so they've never bothered to go further than that. And that has disempowered the patient and now actually is causing their problem. So it's the belief which is causing the problem, but the belief at the time was from a practitioner who was well-intentioned, but it has gone on and on and on. And, and let's, let's not be, you know, let's not be wrong about this. That can be very serious. I mean, I have someone in this area, um, in my, my geographic area, who had a relatively simple shoulder pain um, was given um, opioid painkillers. And that was well-intentioned, I'm sure, at the time. But unfortunately, the prescription was never caught up and it was repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated. And the girl was young and didn't know anything more. And she went into liver failure and needed a liver transplant. So, you know, these things can happen. And it could be that, you know, the very time you're pressing into somebody's back and you say, well, yeah, I think that's through that tight muscle that you've got. And we need to really get rid of that. And you never see the patient again. The patient doesn't come back. And so they go through their life thinking, I can't do this because I've got a tight muscle. I can't play with my kids because I've got a tight muscle. I've got to change my car seat. I can't have that type of car because I've got a tight muscle. And what is what is simple to you as a therapist becomes something which is complex and limiting to the patient. So we've got to be very careful. Words, you know, words have power, don't they? And as do actions, therapeutic actions. Excellent. Yes, it's very much touching on what um, Mike was saying last uh, week with the power of the other language we use and the posters we've got up and the associations we make. Okay, so we're very much on the same page. And I think quite a lot of people in here looking at the names of the people in here are as well but something's going wrong isn't it I mean you've worked with different educational organizations it does seem that the way traditionally we've taught this is we'll give them a structural reasoning first of all where we just get people on level three to, to look for lordosis kyphosis mark it down one shoulder high on the other and straight away we're educating them to treat the car to treat the body like a car which is complicated, but as long as we follow the right kind yeah. of like book, 
how are we doing it wrong? Do we need to really I, I think, start anatomy with consciousness yeah. of the brain and then add the structure? Or you, you've got to give a student a, a model for them to to go on. You know, if you make a cake, you need a recipe. You, you've got to give them some sort of model, but you've got to make sure that that model is based on sound evidence at the time. So when I qualified forty years ago. If we were asking a question in class and the tutor didn't know the answer, they would say, I'll ask the principal. I'll ask the principal of the college. So there was no there was no evidence. There was no research. Now, we've moved on from that. And nowadays you should be able to, you know, to justify what you're doing from the evidence. And that evidence will be research predominantly, but it can be clinical practice and, 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 and patient experience as well, but it predominantly research. So we need to make sure that what we're teaching is research based. Now, I would suggest that observation is important to a student. Giving them a structure to that observation is important, but postural um, postural analysis and identifying a postural fault is probably not the correct way of doing it. So by all means, observe the body in movement and observe the body statically. But if you're hanging your hat on these terms, which, uh, you know, 30 years ago were relevant, perhaps you've, you, you've not kept up and, and we're all guilty of that, you know. Uh, and I think it is important, you know, when I, I wrote a textbook many years ago on called Backstability and Muscle Imbalance. And within that textbook, I look at that now and I sort of think, well, at the time that was great. That was fantastic. And then I went on, I did some research and got my PhD and, you know, the years rolled on. And I look now and I say, well, actually, that's not particularly useful nowadays. And in 20 years time, I'll probably look back and say what I'm doing now wasn't wasn't relevant. But you have to chop and change with the times and with the evidence. But at the same time, that evidence has to be balanced. And, and I think particularly on social media, it's black or white and clinically it's not. It's grey. And, and and so we've got the anti-posturites, we've got the pro-posturites, we've got the anti-manual therapy, the pro-manual therapy, we've got the anti-hands-on. And, and all that does is confuse students, confuse patients and give you imposter syndrome. And you sort of think, oh, I'm not good enough at my patients because I didn't know that reference that that person put up. I hadn't come across that one paper. And so you beat yourself up about it. And I don't really think that does anybody any good. Gets you lots of likes and shares and different things on Twitter and Witter and Pitter and all, whatever else there is. But I, I really don't think it is good for the profession. I think we shoot ourselves into the foot by being so critical about what we do all the time. Um, and ultimately, it's the patient who suffers because we we're not confident in what we do. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, but I think we do need to. I mean, I teach level three, level four, level five. And even on level three, I'm having to interject each time I go, ding, another moment where you're going to have to tick this for the exam. But it's not quite true. And yeah. I kind of think, I mean, most people who teach will know that the whole syllabus needs some radicalization quite a lot. Yeah. I think we should start off with, right, what is a person? OK, it's the brain and then start off looking at the nervous system and the effect of everything and sensory input before. I mean, when I teach A&P, I try and start off with that. 
So people realise that although we're talking about the muscle does this and the joint moves in this way, it's only because of the governor at the top. Okay, and so when we get into talking about when things start going wrong, already kind of students are thinking, oh, yeah, but what about the guy at the top? How's he involved? Or she involved? Or it involved? You know? Yeah. I, I but we don't. We don't do that because it's complex, isn't it? It is. But essentially, we are trying to study surgical anatomy and we're not surgeons. So, you know, we're looking from the inside out. And, and, and I think to observe the body and to come more from an exercise perspective can sometimes be useful. But I think within sort of translation sometimes that gets lost and 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 i'm i'm a great one within therapy of of intuition and sort of saying to a student well you know what 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 strikes you between the eyeballs of that patient never mind the books and things what what do you as a human being see when you look at that person and sometimes intuitively you will be able to find something and then you can guide along that line and say well you know they seem to be walking in a funny way well okay let's have a look at that and a five-year-old might might be able to to uh, identify that and say well they are not they just seem to be walking funny or they seem to be standing funny or they seem to be doing an odd sort of twitch with their shoulder okay well let's go down that route and see if we can investigate that um because you know if you if you come straight down to bones and muscles you end up focusing on the minutiae and you're treating the hip flexor and actually you miss the person okay right i'm going to start looking at questions in here i'll just remember there's a few people watching this as well um so we'll have a look through there just kind of a summary for people watching this i always try and guide this like i say to people who maybe have just maybe a few months out of passing their level three or level four qualification you've done your postural assessments you've been marked on this maybe even in your case histories you've had your tutor saying oh yes but what does that mean if they got one shoulder in the higher yes we need to balance them out so they need to be level you're probably hearing stuff which is contradicting that but one of the lovely things that Chris and other guests have done before is we're not saying you have to throw everything out as the expression goes you don't have to chuck the baby out with the bathwater. it's just tweaking we still look at these things but we don't forget that behind every single one shoulder higher than the other or lower than the other there's a emotional rationalizing brain we've got to keep that into consideration with regards to what we jump at as the source of the pain or what the person listening to us as we walk around with our clipboard going oh that doesn't look good hmm. doesn't work yeah we're not mechanics so um let's look at some questions here i've seen some lovely comments coming from you yeah, um, concerning comments there oh go on and that is people saying well i feel there's two or three people saying i feel that i've got imposter syndrome and i don't feel confident in the profession i don't feel that i can that i can go on i think you've got that. to look at a patient and say well if not you then who in terms of the treatment so if somebody's come to see you and they are in pain you might sort of say well I you know I'm not the best person in the world to to treat that individual but I'm all that they've got at the moment and I can improve them and that to me is a good therapist the one who's not good is the person who says I know absolutely everything and I'm better than everyone else if you're feeling insecure and you're feeling doubts you're a good therapist so I really I really wouldn't beat yourself up too much. You know, none of us know everything and there will be never a time in your career when you can sit back and say, I know everything. And if there is, stop, retire, get out of the profession. You know, we're constantly learning because we're interacting with human beings. So 
you know, imposter syndrome is important in that you doubt yourself, but that drives you forwards and that makes you a good therapist. Yeah, I've had a few people in there uh, mentioning that. Emily Bryan, just people listening to the podcast, Emily Bryan says, I also struggle with imposter syndrome as massage is my second career after being a dancer my whole life. But it's like, it depends where you feel that your skills are. If you put your skills in your hands and you think that you have to massage lots of people with your hands to get that skill, then yeah, maybe you think you're inexperienced. But when you become a therapist, you're looking at your skills maybe from when you were three years old and you picked up the ice cream with the person next to you because you felt sorry for them. It's more of an empathy thing, isn't it? It's about wanting to care for people. You're not using just your hands and your elbows, are you? I would suggest that Emily can see things in individual individuals as they move that others probably can't mm. because since the age of four or five, she's been looking at people moving. There you so go. You play, yeah. So I think you're only an imposter when you, it depends on how you judge your skills. And, you know, when you look and look at yourself with a different pair of glasses and you realize you've got so much uh, to help people, especially through COVID, I think some therapists, hopefully a lot of therapists will come out of better therapists thanks to covid which is sounds weird but because you will be looking at much more at the subjective considering the person at the end and you've gone through a traumatic experience yourself which often helps you know you'll be interested in how someone feels the public will be more open to the power of touch and the importance of touch and human interaction um you know so I'm not suggesting that, that that we required COVID to do that, but certainly I think it it is something which is important and that has perhaps now risen to the top of, of you know, a bit like the cream in the bottle, really. And, and a lot of the press are talking about this and saying, well, we miss human interaction. We miss touch. And you think, well, yeah, we've been saying that for years, but now others are confirming it. Yeah. That's very true. I liked, as always, every week we have a nice comment or quite a few comments. What does Becky say here, which caught my attention? Oh, there we go. Becky Carroll um, put it, I think we need to be comfortable as therapists to acknowledge and embrace the fact that we are dealing with educated guesswork at best, hence why it's so important to keep up to date. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and there's, a lot of trial and error. there's a lot of your intuition and there's a lot of trial and error within within therapy, within all forms of medicine. Um, it's just that within therapy, it becomes more obvious. You know, uh, if, if you're a doctor, you know, and you're you're giving a prescription, there will be an element you know, of trial and error in how much tramadol you give. So, you know, it's, it's just not as not as obvious as perhaps it is in therapy. Fantastic. Right. So be thinking of other questions, people. It's eight. 50 so we've got 10 minutes left if we stick to schedule um what about i mean sometimes i like the way you've said especially social media does turn into a polar debate um and it doesn't really help anybody what about now and again posturologists yeah are you familiar with them it's a very old kind of around yeah, the same just, time just as original to that first part i mean you, there are some negatives about social media but there are also a hell of a lot of positives i mean you hmm. can get a lot of education for nothing from social media so you know let, let uh, and, and, and certainly covid has shown us that you know that research can be so quick to be shared lives have been saved by by social media no doubt about that Good Posturologists, I, I mean, I think it's like anything, isn't it? Um, you can take one 
element of any profession and make it into a profession. You know, you could have an injector therapist or an eyeball therapist, I suppose that would be an optician. But yeah, so and and and, and I think the danger of that is that you you medicalize something which is how posture really developed. I mean, if you look at the, the history of posture, it became medicalized and it became something that was important medically in the 1920s. Prior to that, it was just, well, it was just to do with good and bad posture and what dress size you took and, and, and how you stood in a, in a, in a, a regiment in the army and, you know, sort of the Ling um, Swedish gymnastic school and all these types of things. So it, it then became medicalized. Um, as I suppose we could say that massage became med- medicalized and exercise became medicalized. You know, it's how you how you sell it to to the individual. But you, I think you've got to be cautious that you know the, the, we've got we've got a, a, a whole list here of good therapists who are feeling insecure. But you've got a lot of people out there who will say, yeah. By doing this, I can sell this person this chair or this back support. And if I tell them that their low dose is, is wrong, they'll buy this, that and the other. So, you know, the flip side is that you can use this or any type of approach as a money generating scheme. Um, yeah. Be a bit careful with that. You can pay to pathologize. I can't remember who said that. I'll give you credit to who it is, but it's yeah. a nice, uh, it's a nice way of looking at it. And we've got to be aware of that. Anything that simplifies down enough, and that's what it is. It's making something very simple um, and attractive to us as therapists paying for CPD courses yeah. and to patients yeah. receiving it. So, um, but I like what you said about social media. It's true, and there's a lot of positive stuff that's come out of it as well. Becky's come back with saying, for example, if it weren't for social media, I wouldn't have found the STA in my hour of need. See what I mean? You can see what sort of person we're talking about here. She definitely comes out with it. Oh, something in my eye. That's it. That's it. Going. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, tell me a little bit about. I mean, now I've um, we've never actually talked before face to face. I think we've coincided on various um, conferences and things. But so I'm really interested in your courses now particularly the one which is about posture and when does it matter i feel like i've got a much better knowledge of listening to you for the hour but anything else unique about your course which you'd like to mention or talk about yeah i run dozens of courses face-to-face courses but i've also got some which are online and so what i what i've done with the posture pain and therapy course is essentially to put the, the 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 posture side of things online and, and it goes through a whole series of different tests in clinical reasoning with with patient demonstrations and with subject demonstrations. And, and my aim really is so that the therapist can go through piece by piece and they can look at the technique again, look at the technique again, and they can perfect that for themselves. And they've then got some, you know, some more skills in their in their treatment toolbox. And what I've done is to try to on that particular course to throw it open and say, well, okay, it might be physios. It might be osteos. It might be massage therapists. It might be personal trainers. It may be Pilates teachers. You know, there will be an element within that course that would be helpful to you in that profession so it goes it's quite an extensive course goes we've got about 80 lectures on it and then and you know some of them vary from lectures with slides to to um lecture demonstrations to video demonstrations to interventions and these types of things and there's you know there's manual therapy and there's taping and there's all sorts of different things so what I, what i've done is to say well okay on the one side let's take the research on the other side let's take the experience and the things that i found over the years that work 
and let and let's put them together and, and and it seems to be working in that it gets good feedback and people say people say nice things about the courses you know and i've i've, I've got a number of a number of these courses but in terms of the posture one that that is uh, that is the the, uh, the the important one the other one that i run is the the back rehabilitation to go two day course which is a three hours approach and that some of some of that is online simply because i've been teaching it to some of the universities online um but essentially that's a two day back you know face to face course where we go through all the research but we go through all the practical stuff and again the beauty of that is that i get therapists and exercise professionals all working together learning from their own different skills so where we've got that example we would use somebody with dance skills to say well okay this is how you do it to the physios and the physios would say well this is how you can do a simple manual technique if you're a personal trainer and so what i'm trying to do in the three hours approach really is a is a clinical framework so rather than just teaching you things it's drawing out your individual skills and and putting those together so those are the sort of the two parallels i suppose the two parallel courses that i have which involve posture and postural interventions fantastic so for people listening to the podcast and can't see what's on screen then the website to go to is norrishealth.co.uk and all de details of that are up there as well as long as a blog and various resources which i recommend you take a look at um have you got plans as with well, I suppose being a physiotherapist yourself, you've been able to see people face to face. But are there plans for any of these courses to go face to face once that's allowed? Or yeah. so um, yes, I'm, I'm, uh, we're we're in the clinic all the time uh, in mm. PPE, which is a bit of a pain. But there we go. Um, yeah. So the courses, I think I've got a face to face course in May on the back rehabilitation. That's in Derby. Uh, and that's run through NCOR, who are a particular organisation attached to one of the Derby hospitals. Um, I also, I, I've also got quite a few face-to-face -face courses on other subjects. I, I, I do some teaching on acupuncture and dry needling, these types of things, and those those are going ahead um, at the end of March, I think, is the 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 first one. So they're gradually sort of waking up again. Um, and those will go out through the summer. And what we've done is to cut the numbers down, make sure that we've got good airflow, make sure that we've got PPE, and and you know just as as the universities are doing at the moment, um, sort of making it making it safe, making it safe, but also making it making so that people are confident to to do it. So you want to be able to to relax and and not um, not be conscious of what you're doing. Oh, Becky's telling me that she's done my dry needling course a few weeks. Yeah, you've got, a, you've got quite a few um, supporters in here tonight. They're speaking very fondly of you. And Nicholas Smith as well says that um, she went to a two-day back care course with you. Oh, it was great. Brilliant. Very interactive. And like you say, therapists from various backgrounds. Yeah. It's an interesting time. As well, that when, you, when you've got people from different backgrounds, it's really great. It makes it more interesting for the tutor. Um, we've got... I mean, it's an interesting time for CPD. And I think therapists are going to have to be careful because once conferences are allowed to happen again and over 100, 200 people, whatever, are allowed to meet up, I think, well, those of you who've got some money put away, because I appreciate a lot of you haven't got any money at all. But as therapists, I think there's going to be this danger of, right, I need to start educating myself again. I've been off for a year or something. And so choose your CPD wisely. If it yeah. makes it any easier for you, just go through the guests I've had on this podcast and just... <laughs> 
them out. Just choose what you like the look of. Sure. I can personally vouch for people who've been on this show, but I think it's a dangerous time because I think, like you say, that the healthy CPD, like yourself and Mike Stewart and other people we've had on here, Claire Minchell, etc., is there. But there's going to be an awful. There's going to be an opportunity for other less should we say evidence-based forms of CPD yeah. to get out there as well with massive marketing things they've been planning and they'll hit the yeah, social media. So it's a difficult world to filter through if you're a student mm. because Very you difficult. Don't know that a course is bad until you've been on it. Yeah. yeah. Let's um we're talking about posture. We'll finish off with a question from Lisa Reynolds then if that's okay with you. I'll bring it up on the screen. That's one of the joys of joining us live. Lisa Reynolds says, does how you sleep affect your posture seeing as how long you spend time in it? How would you change that if you think it was affecting someone presenting with pain? Um, so the shoulder. I, yeah, I it can be. I think it can be related to it. Certainly, the you know the, the the way that you take up your sleeping posture. But we can also look at posture from another perspective. We talk about biopsychosocial approaches, saying, well, you know when we're talking about the mechanics of muscles and bones we're talking about the biological but we've also got the psychological and the sociological and certainly sleep would be something which is coming into recovery and the psychology of it and you know a, a person who is is getting better sleep and is less anxious less depressed is more likely to have a more upright posture and vice versa. So what we do know is that through sort of general um, embodied cognition theory is the, is the big thing that, you know, the way that your thoughts um, can um, be exposed, if you like, by your posture and vice versa. So if somebody's very depressed, they will tend to go more into a fecal um, posture and if they're more confident they'll tend to be more upright and we find that particularly with adolescents for example um, so I think there is a relationship between those two between posture and sleep I don't think it's necessarily a causal relationship but it's certainly an observed relationship definitely yeah that's some great points there and we could have talked a lot more on the whole relationship between posture and uh, emotion and stress and anxiety and worry but um oh yeah i've had people persuading their partner to sleep on the other side turning their beds the other way around so the windows on the opposite side sometimes you have to go to change the whole bedroom around just so they can happily sleep yeah. the other way around but any change to the body is going to potentially desensitize an issue isn't it a pain issue and getting, experiencing different stuff change so you can say to people well look just for two days sleep yeah. Sleep, you know, sleeping on the bed until you can find that your pain is slightly better so that you can sleep through and then you can move back together. It doesn't, doesn't need to be permanent. Fantastic. So, right. Um, thank you so much, Chris, for your time. Uh, it's been a great hour. I can't wait to listen to it back myself. I hope everyone in here has uh, gained some information. And if you are interested in uh, Chris's courses, then make sure you do go to the website. We'll put links up in the comments um, so that you can uh, go there directly. Um, next week, um, same time, same place, we're gonna be talking about, if I remember rightly, hypermobility. So another great topic, which is related to posture, I'm sure everything is. So yeah, do join us next week. Um, Chris, thank you so much for your time. No problem, um, nice to I, see you. If possible, and we're going to have to start doing these soon. There's always such a demand to have people back because we try squeezing it all into an hour. But maybe in a month or two months time, we'd love to have you back if you're available and free. Yeah. And hopefully by then some people have done your course and they can uh, talk about them as well. <laughs> yeah. 
right thanks people thanks for joining us again thanks for people listening to the podcast um we'll be back next tuesday at the same time at eight o'clock on the sports therapy association podcast take care you're listening to the sports therapy association podcast let's talk about it.